Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is economist Glenn Hubbard. Dr. Hubbard is Dean and Russell L. Carson Professor of Finance and Economics at Columbia Business School. In addition to writing more than 100 scholarly articles in economics and finance, Dr. Hubbard is the author of three popular textbooks, as well as co-author of The Aid Trap, Hard Truths About Ending Poverty, Balance, The Economics of Great Powers from Ancient Rome to Modern America, and Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise, Five Steps to a Better Healthcare System. Dr. Hubbard also has a wealth of real-world economic policy experience. From 1991 to 1993, he was a Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. From 2001 until 2003, he was Chairman of the U.S. Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush, where he played a key role in the design of the 2003 Bush tax cuts. He also served as an economic advisor to the 2008 and 2012 presidential campaigns of Mitt Romney and the 2016 campaign of Jeb Bush. In the corporate sector, he serves on the boards of ADP, BlackRock, Closed End Funds, and MetLife. Dr. Hubbard is co-chair of the Committee on Capital Markets Regulation, a past chair of the Economic Club of New York, and a past co-chair of the Study Group on Corporate Boards. My initial introduction to Dr. Hubbard was, well, less than positive, I guess you could say. Uh, In 2010, the documentary filmmaker Charles Ferguson came out with a movie called Inside Job, which was all about the financial crisis and who caused it, who was responsible, who had their heads in the sand, that sort of thing. And I thought it was a really intriguing documentary. Uh, I was very much sucked in. It definitely took a strong ideological viewpoint left of center. Uh, one of the subjects in this interview was Dr. Hubbard. And he came off looking like, well, like a pretty big jerk. Uh, And so when I was thinking about who we might want to bring on the show to to interview, uh, I I thought of Dr. Hubbard because, you know, I tried, I I, I tried to push past some of my preconceptions and so forth. And I thought, even though it seemed to me that he was a pretty big jerk, he also was a very distinguished economist and he's influenced policy as on as high a level as you can. And so I reached out to to Dr. Hubbard and immediately his representatives got in touch, said he'd be pleased to talk with me. And uh, I think as you'll see in the interview, he actually was an incredibly pleasant and gracious guy, not nearly the sort of right wing zealot that I feel like he was portrayed as an inside job. And and basically this I I mentioned this because this was yet another example of me changing my mind because I took the time to actually reach out to somebody and and talk to them on their own terms and, and not accept what somebody else had, had basically presented to me about them. And I'm really glad I did that. Um, I also should, I should mention, reached out to Charles Ferguson because I thought he'd be an interesting person to interview. And well, I never heard back from him or anyone uh, in his uh, organization group, what have you. So there you go. Anyway, without further ado, my interview with Dr. Glenn Hubbard. Dr. Hubbard, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'd like to start by asking you about one of your more recent books, which sounded just absolutely fascinating to me. I love books that have kind of a vast historical sweep. And the title is Balance, the Economics of Great Powers from Ancient Rome to Modern America. And so I was wondering, 
What led you to write it? And what, if any, sort of commonalities do you find concerning the decline of great powers over time? Well, it's a great question. I got interested in this because a lot of people are worried about our own country. You know, what is our future? You know, we, economists often study when growth starts in a country, but sometimes growth stops. Great powers can decline and fail. When I looked at great powers from ancient Rome through imperial Spain, uh, China centuries ago, uh, and so on, up to the U.S. today, I found a commonality when a great power slips. It's typically when politics doesn't keep up with economics uh, and you have fiscal crises. And of course, that sounds a lot like what we're looking at today. So it's a real concern. I argue in the book, though, America can still win this one but it may require a different politics than the one we have. When you say politics doesn't keep up with economics, I would think that that perhaps in modern times would be even a a greater problem. It seems that things move in the economic sphere so quickly and our political system was designed for, well, in, you know, 1789. Do you think there's a growing mismatch between those two systems? Uh, There absolutely is. And I think that part of what we see, again, in great power decline is what economists would call rent seeking when groups in society try to use government policy to make themselves better off, but not the country better off. And we see that in in modern America today. And the question is, you know, will we see a leadership that decides to push growth, but growth that everybody can share in? Without that, it's hard to have buy-in for our system. One critique that I regularly hear of economists, whether they're on the right or the left, is that they have a tendency to sort of fall in love with uh, uh, ivory tower theories and abstractions and that they're, you know, disconnected from the real world of politics and policy. Now, obviously, given your experience in government, no no one can fairly claim that about you. And so I think it kind of puts you in a unique position. And I was wondering, what would you say are the main differences between being an academic economist and an economist advising and sort of helping to develop policies for presidents and presidential candidates? I think it's a great question. Many economists fall into the trap of thinking if you're going into public service or talking with business people, you should just take your models to their problems. A better way to do it is ask them what the real problems are and then try to help them fix them. And I think that's where economists can be successful. I learned a lot, frankly, in in government service. It changed the way I did research. You know, if if the Secretary of the Treasury or the President asks you a question you don't know the answer to, maybe that's what you ought to be working on. So for me, that was a, a game changer. Do you think that it, it, in general that economists are uh, asking the wrong sort of questions or not being responsive enough to what uh, elected officials and policymakers are, are asking, at least ac- academic economists? I think there's a real risk of that. You know, when I was in school, uh, my advisor, who I looked up to and still look up to, told me, be about the economy, not about the economics profession. That is, focus on things that are real, and you'll do fine in academia and in the real world. And I think a lot of economists fall into the trap of not doing that. Economists have a lot to add. I know we're in an era where people don't like experts. I think experts still have a lot to say. But if they want to be heard, they need to focus on real problems. Do you think along the same lines, do you feel that economists are uh, 
unwilling to consider their sort of theoretical uh, fundamentals. I guess, I man, I can't think of too many instances where sort of the real world has taken you know, a a left-wing economist and perhaps change his or her views. I mean, does that actually happen? And and I guess, should it happen, do you think? Well, I think what economists need to do is make sure that in their research and advice, they're talking from economics, not from politics. So reasonable people can disagree, you know, over an empirical piece of data or how to do something, but one shouldn't argue simply based on one's political priors. And unfortunately, on both the right and the left, you see economists who do that. I think where economists are, are helpful and useful and ultimately influential is when they're talking about economics, not politics. The world doesn't need more politicians. We have plenty. Well, I think that's a, a frustration that a lot of people have is that uh, some economists will present themselves as being just about the facts when really they're trying to essentially smuggle in some sort of a uh, political agenda. It's true. And, and I can give you examples of, of areas where that hasn't been true, where economists have been more influential. So, for example, I think the whole economics profession would say low, steady inflation is a good thing. We all agree on that. How to get there, there may be disagreements. We all agree on that. If you take health care reform, on the other hand, the lack of agreement has really driven political wedges. And I think when people hear economists, they wonder, am I hearing an economic view or am I hearing a political view? So I think where possible, economists need to figure out where we can agree. That's where we can really move the policy needle. You played a a major role in the creation of what became the, the what are called the Bush tax cuts, which I think totaled somewhere around one point five trillion dollars or so. Uh, now, critics of tax cuts back then and even today uh, often argue that the benefits go disproportionately to the rich, that they exacerbate economic inequality, and that while cuts can sometimes boost growth they don't really come close to actually paying for themselves as sometimes is claimed. I'm I'm wondering if you think there's anything to those critiques. I do. I think that, you know, it's important when you go back to the Bush tax cuts to remember, it sounds weird by today's standards, but the nation had huge surpluses that were being projected. So it wasn't like the current environment of thinking about deficit finance tax cuts. Now the world changed. We had 9-11 and the stock market decline and so on. But if you were to think about them at the beginning, that's the framework. I think tax policy can have a really big effect on growth. I think that's very important. There are many ways to affect distribution in a society. Spending strikes me as more a reasonable way to do that than the, than the tax code. But what I get frustrated by are claims on both sides. So I get frustrated when I hear on the right that tax cuts will pay for themselves. They will not. It is true that a tax cut that's pro-growth will pay for part of itself with faster growth, but no tax cut I'm aware of fully pays for itself. And on the left, I get frustrated when we put aside pro-growth tax reform. And if you think about the debate today we need to be having, let's use the example of the corporate tax. Cutting the corporate tax would be good for workers uh, as well as for savers. And yet you'd never hear that in the debate. Now, now that's one of those issues, right, where there's a certain uh, 
wide-ranging agreement of, uh, with economists saying that essentially we have a, a corporate tax rate in the United States that's too high, depending on how you measure it, it's either the highest in the world or in the top four or five or so. And that's something, right, where you would think we could work to, to do something about since there is such widespread agreement. Well, it is, but then it gets uh, into the politics of distribution. So, for example, we would all agree we should cut the corporate tax rate a lot and broaden the tax base to help pay for that. But then people will say, well, that's a tax cut for the rich because shareholders tend to be wealthier households. Most economists, I think, today believe that the burden of the corporate tax is actually borne by workers. When we have a high corporate tax, we discourage investment and location in the United States, and that hurts our workers. So we really need to have a debate where people strip off their political labels and talk about what's real. I'd like to thank the sponsor of today's show, SeatGeek. You know, I'm not a big fan of buying tickets to live events because I always feel like there's a better deal out there somewhere and I just haven't found it. But, but honestly, I've got too much else going on. I'm not going to go to a, you know, a whole bunch of sites and try to find what the best deal is and all that kind of thing. I just don't have the time for it. And that's why I love SeatGeek. They've solved this problem for me. It's the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events. It only takes two taps on the SeatGeek app to buy tickets. And it's also really quick and easy if you buy tickets from them through their website, SeatGeek.com. And the reason that SeatGeek can give you such great deals on tickets to live events is they go out and do that comparison shopping for you on multiple ticket sites and they bring back the best deals. In fact, they even grade every available ticket based on value so you can right away instantly see what the best deal is for your budget. And best of all, Politics Guys listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com and enter promo code POLITICSGUY today. That's promo code POLITICSGUY for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. I guess part of the problem, right, is that you talked earlier about rent seeking and it seems like our tax code is just uh, filled with examples of that. And so lowering the overall rate and taking out some of those provisions that benefit certain groups, uh, while that might may uh, garner agreement among economists politically, that's a very tricky uh, and difficult thing to do. It's very hard, but we have done it. You know, the Tax Reform Act of 86 did a lot of that. And I think we have to ask ourselves as a country, are we ready to have faster growth that helps everybody? Or are we going to let special interests stand in our way? I hope that the president will lead on this. You can't really have good tax reform without the president. And I hope we don't use this as an occasion just to generate a giant deficit. What we need is real tax reform. What about that argument? This, I think, is the first thing we hear from from the left whenever there's a proposal for a tax cut is uh, most of this is going to the top, whatever, one percent, one tenth of one percent and so forth. And the essentially the economic inequality argument. I mean, uh, the, the idea essentially that a rising tide may lift all boats, but it's going to lift some boats a whole lot more than others. Is that, in your view, a legitimate concern? Well, I think we can see where the concern comes from. We've designed the tax system now where so much of the revenue is raised from high-income folks in the country 
any tax cut that cuts rates by definition is going to benefit higher income people more in dollars. The real question is what are the economic effects of the tax cut and who gets the benefit of that? And there, I think pro-growth tax policy really can help workers a lot. But having said that as a criticism of the left, you know, on the right, people have to understand that we need tax reform that helps low-income workers. So expanding the earned income tax credit, perhaps directly subsidizing wages. And I know a lot of people on the right don't want to do that. But if we want to encourage work and support for a growth-oriented tax code, we need to do both. That's something that has always puzzled me. You mentioned the, the earned income tax credit. That's another one of those issues where I've heard a lot of agreement from at least economists on both the left and the right that this would be an excellent thing. And yet it seems to it seems to essentially not happen. And that just has always been you know fairly puzzling to me. It should be puzzling and it does need to happen. You know, the, the earned income tax credit actually had a conservative ori origin in wanting to support work. Over time, it became more of a family support program. To get a large benefit from the EITC, you need to have uh, a number of kids. The real group we should be concerned about is getting young people into work. They're more likely than not without kids or possibly single. So we need a big expansion of the childless EITC benefit. And I hope that over time, our political leaders, whether they're conservative or liberal, will come to realize the importance of work. If you look at the decline in labor force participation and frankly problems that some communities have run into and in, with drugs and alcohol, it has been because of an absence of work and support for work. This is a problem that's an American problem, not a Democrat or Republican problem. Currently, uh, uh, the economic news, it looks at least reasonably good. I mean, we're in the we're in the middle of hopefully in the middle of a really long economic recovery. I think it's been over eight years now. But but the rate of growth, I think, for the most people has been uh, disappointing. And there are some people, I think, most notably Larry Summers, who argue that we're in uh, what's called a secular stagnation, which I guess I'd describe as sort of a new normal where we have slow growth and interest rates that are too low with the suggestion that what we need is expansionary fiscal policy. In other words, like, you know, government spending more and not worrying all that much about deficits. And I was hoping to get your thoughts on the secular stagnation argument. Well, I can see why people worry about it. We have been in a period of very sluggish growth. We do have low interest rates, and it's tempting to reach for something that conforms with what people may want to do on policy anyway. I don't buy it. I think the economy can grow closer to 3%. It would require a different set of policies that would both raise productivity growth and hours worked, but it is doable. Uh, and in fact, a number of things that are being talked about in regulatory policy, tax policy, monetary policy uh, would help that. So I, I think it's a discussion we need to have, but I think it's a choice that Americans can make. Kind of along the same lines, there are there are some economists, and I'm thinking here uh, primarily of uh, Robert Gordon, uh, Tyler Cohen for uh, a little bit, uh, who argue that government can't necessarily do all that much and that a lot of our issues with slow growth in this period are really driven much more by larger factors, uh, technology, uh, uh, education, other things like that, and that the role of government is actually much more limited than what maybe a lot of people would think. Uh, do, you, do you think there's anything to that? 
Well, it's certainly the case that government by itself can't fix all these problems. I think of government as basically setting the stage for the energies of men and women in the private sector to fix the problems. What does that mean concretely? It would mean a big support for basic research, a tax reform that encourages productivity growth, and regulatory reform that supports new business creation in the country. So I I see everything Bob Gordon says, but I just don't accept the pessimism. Bob has a colleague, Joel Mokir, an eminent economic historian, who I think would argue that we could be on the cusp of several technological and productivity booms. Economists need to be somewhat humble. We're really good at talking to you about productivity booms or slumps in the past, but we're not that good at forecasting it going forward. Hasn't that been sort of a, uh, an unsolved mystery in economics, the reason for the kind of lagging productivity? And there seem to be a number of different theories and, and so forth about that. I mean, what, what's, what's your take on why productivity growth hasn't been what we, we might have expected? Well, I think there's no single thing, but I think policy has a factor. Uh, you, you see productivity slumps uh, in the 70s and booms in the 90s that are correlated with uh, good and, or bad and good policy toward productivity respectively. So I think there are things we can do to help productivity growth. You know, there's no reason we can't see 2% productivity growth, which would be what's required to get toward a 3% overall growth rate, it would just require a different thinking in Washington than we presently have. There's been uh, a whole lot of talk about major tax reform possibly happening this fall. And, and as you mentioned, that, that would be the, if that happened, it'd be the first time it had happened since way back in 1986. Uh, there seems to me to be bipartisan agreement that the current system is, is definitely in need of an overhaul. But at that point, it seems like that's where the agreement ends. And so I, I was hoping to get your take. What would you say currently are the main flaws in our current tax code? And how do you think they could best be addressed legislatively? Well, I see two big issues. One is the way we tax businesses. Part of this is corporate tax reform. But remember, a lot of people work for businesses that aren't C corporations. They're partnerships or sole proprietorships. So we need to lower business tax rates generally. To pay for that, we need to broaden the tax base. That would mean getting rid of corporate special provisions on the individual side, limiting deductions. For example, the state and local uh, tax deduction has come up. You know, it's easy to talk about cutting rates. It's harder to talk about broadening the base. Uh, frankly, we need a tax code that uh, focuses less on these distorting business taxes and much more on taxing other things like consumption. So I think that's part of it. The other piece is, as I said before, supporting low-income individuals and low-wage work. And so I think if we had both of those, it would be a politically winnable tax reform. What I think we're going to get is going to be something different. I think it's going to be a net expansion of the deficit, do some good things, perhaps in rates, but I'm not sure it's reform. What do you think about the idea, and some have pushed this to dramatically lower individual and corporate tax rates and make up for it by implementing a value-added tax, which a lot of advanced industrial countries, I think the vast majority of them, have? 
I've been saying this for years. I think it is exactly what we need to do. If you think of a value-added tax, it's really a tax on consumption. And so it would basically say everybody has a stake in the system by paying a consumption tax. And then you could have a small income tax around it that gives subsidies to low-income people and taxes higher-income people. So government's essentially paid for by a consumption tax, but we would use income taxes as a way of making sure higher-income people pay even more, lower-income people pay less. That's an eminently sensible idea. Having said that, it's hard to see our current political climate giving it to us. One argument I hear on the right is that it's such an efficient way to raise money that it would inexorably lead to a greatly expanded government. And so that's not what a lot of folks on the right want to see. Well, you know, that's that's an issue. But our politicians need to have courage to resist that. It can't be that the right answer is let's make a tax code so costly and bizarre that it starves the nation of revenue that it needs. So I, I don't accept that argument. I know we're running out of time. But just one final question for you. Uh, what resources, whether they be authors, books, websites, documentaries, or you know what have you, would you recommend for listeners who want to get a, a fuller understanding of economic policy than they're than they're likely to find from, say, just reading the New York Times or or the Wall Street Journal? Oh, it's a great question. I myself turn in uh, the media to the Economist. Uh, magazine, which I think has great discussions of public policy, but I think the websites of leading think tanks, and there's some that are center-right, some that are center-left, give you cutting-edge policy analysis. So everybody has access to these things. The problem with just reading um, news media is you could be getting bias on one side or the other. Yeah, almost, almost certainly, I think. Well, with, with that, we will, we will close. Thank you so much, Dr. Hubbard, for taking the time Thank to talk you. with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. We hope you liked what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsor, SeatGeek, where Politics Guys listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com and enter code POLITICSGUY today. You know, listener support is a big help to us, and we truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can do that by going to PoliticsGuys.com and clicking on the Patreon link. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, it would be great if you could share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also really does help. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or a random thought you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post stuff throughout the week is facebook.com slash page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you join us.